Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Well, he is still risen. <laughs> he is still risen indeed. I think, you know, what do we do now? Um, week after great Easter celebration, I imagine even like the, those first followers of Jesus, they wake up on that Monday morning. Like, what do we do now? What, what, what changes now that Jesus is alive? What does all of this mean for us, and we, and we see at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the disciples wrestling with that question. We see that continue through the book of Acts. But we also see it as these churches are popping up all around the known world, as more people are following Jesus, as we read in Acts where the gospel is turning the world upside down, we see these letters going back to these churches that begin to teach these first followers what it means to live in the light of the resurrection. How do you live? How does that change you, your identity, your purpose? How does all of that change because Jesus is still alive? How do we live in the light of the resurrected Jesus? And today we're launching a new series in First and Second Peter to explore that question. And we feel so strongly about what the Lord wants to say to us through these two letters that we're committing the next 17 weeks to studying them together as a church. And so by the time we wrap up this series uh, on August 1st, <laughs> we will all be very well aware of what these letters from Peter to the churches Say, but our, but our hope and our prayer is not just that we know what they say up in our head, not just that we become familiar with the letters and maybe even see some of the cool connections to what it means in our world today, but that, that we really begin to take what is up here and it, and it, and it plants a seed in our heart to where it changes. Like the fact that Jesus is alive changes who we are, who we are becoming and what we do even today, that we will allow these words to shape and to transform our hearts, to influence our lives and how we engage in the world around us. And so if you have a, a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, I invite you to open it with me. First Peter chapter one. First Peter is all the way towards the end. If you go to Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far, go just a little bit back. Uh, but first Peter chapter one, we're gonna be looking at the introduction to, to Peter's letter today. You know, I've always been drawn to, to Peter. Uh, in the Gospels, we get a, a picture of, of Peter as someone who is ambitious and spontaneous, as someone who every now and then maybe gets ahead of himself and, and sticks his foot firmly in his mouth or does something that he probably looks back on later going, oh, why did I do that? And so if you've ever, if you've ever done that, if you can relate to that, then Peter is maybe your, your guy. Uh, when others shrink back, Peter jumps in. And because of that, we find Peter 
in great moments of just like where he just gets it right. And then we see him oftentimes in the very next moment, just great failure where it's like he gets it all wrong. And, and you know, it's interesting. I find myself in that sometimes too. Like, man, I've really got this faith thing down. Oh, that's right. I still have a really long way <laughs> to go. If, if that's you, if you can relate to that, then I think, think that maybe you can relate with Peter. And when we think about Peter, we think of this life that's still a work in progress, but, but there were so many things in his faith that we, we desire. When Jesus walks to the disciples on water, Peter is the only one who gets out of the boat and actually walks to Jesus. And it's not long as he's walking on water. It's not long after that when, when he begins to look down at the waves that are crashing up against him and, he, and like it hits him. What in the world am I doing? He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. And in the very next moment, like Jesus reaches down, pulls him up and he says, you have little faith. When, when Jesus is sitting with his disciples one day and they're talking and, and Jesus asks them, hey, who do, who do you say that I am? Peter is the only one bold enough to proclaim, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And then he starts to talk about how he's gonna have to suffer and die. And, and Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, never Lord. And a moment after after making this bold profession of faith of who Jesus is, Jesus turns and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Listen, there's a lot of things that I wanna hear Jesus say to me. That is not one of them. <laughs> but we see these moments of greatness and then great failure. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter says, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. I will go with you. I will surrender everything, whatever it costs. Doesn't matter. I am with you to the end. And just hours later, a little girl is sitting next to a campfire with him and says, hey, don't you know Jesus? And Peter's like, nope, never heard of him, never seen him before in my life and denies even knowing him. If you're familiar with Peter, the disciple, this is the man that comes to mind for most of us. Greatness, but then also great failures. But there's another Peter that we find in scripture. Starting in the book of Acts, we find Peter, not the disciple, but Peter, the apostle. It's the same guy, but he is not the same. He's a changed man. And the change that happened within him can only be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. And Peter is still ambitious. He's still even a little impulsive, but his ambition and his desire is set on something and someone far greater. Whereas before it was all about Peter. Now his eyes are fixed on Jesus and he wants nothing more than to know, love and follow him. He wants nothing more than to bring his kingdom to earth and to let more people into and, and, and invite it, let them know that they're invited to follow Jesus as well. He wants more people to find faith in him. That's the difference between the old Peter and the new. It's all about Jesus. And now he's writing this letter to help us make that same shift in our lives too. That we might also be radically transformed in the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view others. Radically transformed in, in how we understand God's mission in this world and the part that we play in it. 
And to help us begin to understand this, Peter starts with our new identity. Look again at what he says in, that, in the second part of verse one. He says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of what is now modern day Turkey. Lisa did such a great job nailing those pronunciations. I'm not even gonna give it a try. <laughs> Peter uses in this verse, three words that I think begin to help us understand who we are in Christ. Three words that kind of shape our identity as those of us who follow Jesus. And one of them is the word exile. It's a word that he goes back to a few times in his letters, and it's a theme that's kind of threaded throughout his letters. It's why we borrowed the word for the title of the series that we're going through. But what does he mean by that? Like, what does it mean to be an exile? Well, to be an exile means that you live in a country that is not your homeland. Another translation interprets this verse as to those who reside as aliens, resident aliens. And so in terms of the Christian faith, it means that we live here, but this world is not our home. We're more than tourists just passing through. Like we're not totally detached from this world, but we're not citizens of this world either. To be an exile in the Christian faith means that we have a meaningful connection to the world, but it's not our home. Our citizenship is somewhere else. You know, some of my favorite experiences following Jesus um, have been serving him and others on the mission field around the world. And it's taken me uh, just to some pretty incredible places. I've stayed in the home of a presidential candidate for a week in Liberia. Um, I've prayed in the office of a governor in Mozambique. I've slept in tents in the bush of Africa and have shared more than a handful of meals with families where I had no idea what I was eating. And honestly, probably didn't want to know what I was eating at the time either. And to be honest, I loved every single minute of it. I've been around the world for the cause of Christ and have been met with such graciousness and hospitality by our brothers and sisters in Christ everywhere I've been. But I'll tell you, there is no place like home. <laughs> and if you've traveled for work or maybe you've been on the mission field before, extended vacation, like you just know there's no place like home. And I, and, I, and I typically start feeling at home when I arrive at the first airport in the U.S., after going through customs, I walk out into the airport and I'm like, whoa, I can actually read these signs. I know what they say. <laughs> I can drink my favorite drinks and eat my favorite unhealthy, overly processed food. <laughs> and then, and then I go to like my home, like where I live and there's nothing like taking a shower in my own shower or sleeping in my own bed that just gently and softly wraps itself around me, welcoming me home. <laughs> Tim Keller says that home is where everything just fits. It's where things feel right and familiar. When you're home, you don't have to open up every cabinet looking for the dish that you need. You know exactly where it is. 
When you're home, you're able to walk through your halls in the middle of the night with the lights off because you know the layout of it. And that becomes a very dangerous proposition when you have kids that like to play with Legos, like our girls do. (laughs) But there's something familiar about home. You know it. The smells are familiar. The, The sounds are familiar because it's your home. It's where our deepest longings and cravings and desires are met. It's where we can be ourselves, be comfortable. It's the place where we feel the most joy and love and peace. It's the place like we, where we feel we can be the most like us. And by that definition, if you are a follower of Jesus, this world cannot possibly feel like home. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're just checking this Christianity thing out, if you're exploring faith, isn't there something about this world that just makes you go, man, something's off. Something's not right. I I, I can't put my finger on it, but it just seems like this is not the way that it's supposed to be. What what we would say from, from a faith perspective is that God has put eternity on our heart. He's put this desire for him in our heart. And this world is filled with brokenness and pain and sin. It is not how God designed it to be. And so there are so many good and beautiful things in it. But every time we see one of those things happen that just remind us this world is not our home, it causes us to to long for something more. And so whether you are a person of faith or not, when we experience that, what that is inside of us is it's us longing for our true home, longing for the way it's supposed to be. And many of us have found in this world that it cannot satisfy those deepest longings and cravings and desires within us. And again, this world is filled with beautiful things but it's also filled with death and suffering and injustice and it will never satisfy those deepest parts within us. And if you begin to think that this world is your home or that this life is all that there is, then you'll be constantly looking for your identity here. You'll be looking for your your purpose or your comfort here. And the truth is, is that you just won't find it. There'll always be something in you that is discontent. It's like drinking salt water. There's a temporary satisfaction, but it's only going to leave you thirsting for more. I think it's why Peter says, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in exile here. This world is not your home. Your identity is in something. In fact, your identity is in someone far greater. I was a middle school minister for for five years at a church in Kentucky. And people have asked me what it's like to go through a leadership transition in the midst of a global pandemic. And I'm like, listen, I tried to lead a group of middle schoolers to Jesus and help them find faith um, in the midst of hormones and puberty. Uh, I survived that. I can survive this. Like, we're good. <laughs> but one of the questions that I was asked most often by parents and by, by people who, who were interested, just what is, what is it like trying to lead middle schoolers to faith? One of the questions that I got most often is like, what's the biggest issue facing middle schoolers today? And I think that they always assumed that I would say something like, well, you know, sexual holiness, choosing the right friends, making right choices, not doing drugs, you know, the the, the typical don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do uh, type thing. (laughs) 
But to me, it wasn't that. The biggest issue facing middle schoolers is really the biggest issue that faces each one of us in here today. It comes down to identity. Like where or who do you find your worth, your value, your purpose, your meaning? What do you turn to when you feel homesick? Where do you run looking for comfort? Where do we find our home? And I believe that if you get that right, then everything else follows. It's why identity is at the heart of Christianity and the foundation of our identity is beyond anything that we can find in this world because we were made for something so much more than this world. And for those of us who are in Christ, who have professed our faith and are now following him, we belong to Christ who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That is your identity. That is who you are. It is beyond anything that you can experience or find in this world. We belong to him. Our hope is in him. His kingdom is our desire. We feel most at home in him. And this is fundamentally who we are, which means in this world, we are exiles. We live here. We're committed to this place. We are working for its good. But this place does not define us because it's not our home. Peter tells us where identity is from, but notice in in verse one, that he put a qualifier on this. Yes, you are exiles, but don't miss this. He addresses this to God's elect. I know that word carries a lot of theological weight, but what I wanna make sure that we hit today, and I wanna make sure we do not miss this, is that God has chosen to set his affection on you. In the same way that he chose Israel, the least to be the object of his love and to to represent him to the world, God has chosen to do the same in you. He has chosen to set his affection on you. He has chosen to make you an object of his mercy and his grace, his unconditional love and steadfast faithfulness. I don't have all of the answers of the hows and the whys, but I certainly know it's not because we deserved it. It's because God took delight in you. This is the most important thing about who you are. God knows you. That's that word when it talks about the, by the, the, the foreknowledge of God in verse two. God knows you. It's the same word that he uses with Abraham that, that Quentin talked about earlier. You have been set apart by the Holy Spirit to be holy and to be a blessing to others, to live in obedience to Jesus as a witness to the mercy and the grace that you have received in him. And this is so important because oftentimes when we think of exiles and refugees, we think of people who have been rejected, who have been forgotten. 
And I think what Peter wants us to know by calling us elected exiles is that we are exiles, but we are not living in this world on our own. We are exiles, but more importantly, we are dearly loved by God, chosen by him, known by him, set apart for him, saved and secured in him. And even when the world feels dark and lonely and we feel a little homesick, we have not been forgotten. You have not been abandoned to this world. Peter says, you are elected exiles scattered out into the world. You have been sent out to make Jesus known, sent out to be Christ's ambassadors, to bring his kingdom, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So how do we live as elected exiles? Scattered throughout the world to represent Jesus and bring his kingdom closer to earth. Well, I think that this is the question that Peter attempts to answer in the rest of his, his letter. And so we're going to take a deep dive in the next several weeks to really get practical. Like, how do we apply this theology? How, what does it, how does it really change who we are and who we are becoming and what we do because of the resurrection of Jesus? And so we're gonna do a deep dive into some very specific things that that means for us today. But I think that this is a question that the church has been trying to answer from the very beginning. For centuries, the church has asked this question, how do we relate to our culture? And we've seen a handful of answers. Some have isolated from the culture. They have decided that the only way to relate to the culture around them is to get as far away from it as they possibly can, completely remove themselves from it because it is evil. On the other end of the spectrum are the churches that have totally conformed to the culture around them. They've assimilated to it. Their motto is, well, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. And unfortunately, this is the direction that we see a lot of liberal, mainline, woke churches taking today. They are far more formed by the culture around them than they are by the word of God in them. And it's leading to some very dangerous places. Some have sought to conquer culture. Their motto is, if you can't beat them, try harder. <laughs> it started with Constantine, and then moved to the Crusades, trying to force faith on people. I think this conquering mentality continues in a lot of Christian circles today. There's this desire that I believe is born out of fear and this need to control. There's this desire to conquer and take over our culture. And we've seen all of these and truthfully, none of them work out very well. And so what's the answer? If it's not to isolate or to conform or to conquer, how are we as followers of Jesus to relate to our culture as elected exiles scattered out amongst it. Well, to borrow a phrase from Jesus, I think that we live as salt and light. We maintain a faithful presence in our world. We cling 
to Christ and our faith in him while we shine as beacons of light and hope, drawing others to the grace and the mercy and the love that we have found. As our culture moves further and further away from the Lord, as it continues to pursue a life and and a way of living that is apart from God's design, as as we become more secular and post-Christian, it's going to be even more important for the church to stand on the firm foundation of of our faith, of God's word, to shine as a beacon of light and hope, calling people back to the Father. And if as a church, we're all the way over here and we are isolated, then, then when people turn, when they get to the end of themselves and to the end of their sin and they realize that it didn't lead to what they were looking for, it only left them wanting more in this desire and they're turning back, trying to figure out how do I get back to what I actually need? If as a church, we have isolated ourselves over here, to where they can't even see our light anymore, then we've lost our effectiveness. But the opposite is also true. If we follow our culture to where it is going, if we assimilate and we just become like our culture, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what you do, you're all good, God is a God of love. Then when they get to the end of themselves and to the end of their sin and they realize that it didn't bring the life that they were looking for, they're gonna be looking back for the light of the church. But the churches that have assimilated with our culture have lost the light and they're right there with them, not able to call them to anything more because they've already given in to all of their convictions. So we wanna be a church that maintains lovingly and graciously like this lighthouse that is planted by the shore, warning people of the dangers ahead, but also calling them back home, being salt and being light. And what we'll see unfold in First and Second Peter is a challenge to let our identity in Christ influence how we live amongst those around us. How we let it motivate us towards love and service and good deeds. But it starts with being mindful, one, of who we are in Christ. That what we do flows out of who we are. And then being mindful of those around us. Listening to their stories, meeting their needs leaning towards empathy and inviting them to something better. And we don't engage with this world as detached tourists just passing through for a brief moment, trying not to get any of it on us. (laughs) But neither do we totally conform to the culture around us and just blindly approve and affirm whatever people want to do, no matter what road it may take them down. In both cases, we lose our effectiveness to witness to others. Instead, we live as Jesus lived, full of truth and full of grace. And Peter knows that this will not be easy. He is well aware of the challenges that come with living lives that are counter to the culture around us, living as exiles because he experienced it himself. But I think that's why he closes his introduction to this first letter with a blessing. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Another translation says, may grace and peace, I love this, be multiplied in you. And so to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout Bloomington and Monroe County, IU Health, Cook, and Crane. 
to God's elect scattered throughout the campuses of IU and Ivy Tech and MCCSC. To God's elect exiles scattered out to serve us in government and uphold the law in court. To those who are working in retail and restaurants, those who are first responders and the brave men and women who serve and protect our community. To God's elect Exiles scattered throughout nonprofits trying to make this world a better place. To God's elect exiles raising their children and serving their families at home. And those of you who are on yet another Zoom call. (laughs) To the elected exiles scattered throughout our community and to the world, God has not forgotten you. He has a purpose for you where you are to be salt and to be light, to be a Christ-centered influence to those around you as you live as an exile here. And does that mean that there will be times where you stand out from our culture? Absolutely. Does it mean that there will be times where you are mocked, where you are made fun of, where you are put down, where you are told that you are on the wrong side of history? Absolutely. But wherever you may scatter this week, may you look for ways to influence the world around you for Christ and to bring his kingdom there. And as you do, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Would you stand with me as I pray? God, thank you for how relevant your word continues to be and how it speaks to us even today. I'm thankful for the change that you made in Peter's life, how you took this this disciple who was kind of, Peter loved him some Peter, but Lord, you took him and you transformed him through the power of your Holy Spirit to where Peter loved you above anything else. And his desire was to bring your kingdom and to shine your light as an exile in this world. And God, I pray that we will be inspired not just by him, but by what Jesus did for us as he came to live as an exile here amongst us. And that Lord, we will be your witnesses. We will be your ambassadors in this world as they are moving further and further from you. God, may you find us to be faithful individually and as a church, calling people, beckoning people back home to you to find grace, to find love that they're looking for, to find the peace and the salvation that they long for. Let it be so in Jesus' name, amen. The person who knew what it meant to be an exile the had as God came down to this earth, took on flesh, became us, but then just become a man. He became a servant and became obedient even to the point of death. And the reason he did was for you to show God's love for you, to make salvation and grace and peace available to you. And so if you're here today and you're ready to take your next step of faith, if you're ready to surrender to him, to identify just as we saw in the beginning of the service with him, his death, burial and resurrection through baptism, we invite you to come. We're gonna sing one more song. But if you're ready to join us in this world as an exile for Christ, we welcome you and you come at the end of the service. But first, let's sing. 
Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.